Hello and welcome to another The Analysis Interview podcast with Total Football Analysis. Uh, my name is David Seymour and I'm really excited for this one because we are joined by a voice you will no doubt be incredibly familiar with, uh, commentator uh, Guy Mowbray. Uh, Guy, thanks for, for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these just with, <laughs> I feel like uh, the guests always give a much better introduction to themselves than I do. So I wonder if you give an introduction to yourself, Guy, but also, I mean, perhaps give a bit more background on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Wow. Um, I don't know which version to give you, the short or the long. Uh, the, the, the long would be here all day, actually, so I'll try, I'll try and do short. Um, yeah, I'm the, the lead commentator at BBC Match of the Day. I, I work for other networks as well, cover well over 100 football matches every season, plus summer tournaments. And there's a long and convoluted route to getting to where I guess I sit right now. But it, it started out with local radio stuff and then you grow from there and get onto sort of the national scene and then start doing a little bit of TV and then move across the networks and, and, and that's that's the short version. There's a lot of right place, right time about it. There's an awful lot of unseen prep behind it. Um, I still have a, a group of people who I have been friends with for years who still, I think jokingly and I hope jokingly, um, say that I work two hours a weekend um, watching a game of football <laughs> and then going home. Um, but in actual fact, it is a seven-day-a-week job. It, it never actually ends. But the reverse side of that is you shouldn't call it a job, really, because it is a passion. It, it, a lot of it I would do anyway. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine that you, you have do a ridiculous amount of research before commentating, um, particularly when it comes to a tournament. I, and I know you would have been commentating on the Euros this summer, for example. Yeah. How do you structure your research? I mean, what are you looking at? Are you looking at purely video? Are you looking at books, magazines? Are you looking at data? All of the above, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I, everybody has a different way of doing it. No two commentators will do it the same. The one common thing is they will all do it. Um, and I, I tend to go off the list of games that I'm scheduled to cover. So for a tournament, for example, I had pretty much mapped out for this summer the six group games, seven group games, I beg your pardon, that I would have been scheduled to cover. Uh, for the European Championships. And, and I would go on those seven games. Some teams would be repeated. England specifically would be repeated across three of those games. But um, ultimately, I've got like, you know, sort of eight or nine teams to to log and to, to cover everything about. And I would get on, that, on with that as soon as possible. In fact, despite the Euros being cancelled, I have tried to... I've, I've not hammered it as much as usual, but I've tried to get ahead of the game by doing some prep for what will be Euro 2021. Um, get the skeleton down. Obviously, things will need updated as we go. But once the skeleton frame is in place, I can add details as as they become available. And um, there's a, there's a heck of a lot, um, heck of a lot of information about the the teams. This, by the way, goes for every Premier League match and every game I would cover in the Champions League as well for the club sides. For for every team, uh, for every match situation, who they're playing against, the history, for every player that might be involved. Um, you know, even possibly be involved. Um, so for a regular Premier League game, I would do what I would consider to be the 11 that I would expect to start, or that would be a best guesstimate, um, the substitutes I would expect to figure, and then every other player that's played for the first team ever, basically, who are still at the club. Plus, I would also update my stats on and facts on all those players who um, are, are out on loan or injured. Mm -hmm. 
And that means how I do it is the next time I come back to doing that team, say I do a Manchester United game and then four weeks later I'm doing Manchester United again, I know where my notes on every player are up to date too. So I can just update from that point. So Mm -hmm. I I make more work for myself that way in a way, but it also speeds it up in a way as well. Um, And I do all mine on computer. They don't look as good, my notes, as many of my colleagues whose handwritten notes, colour-coded, are a thing of beauty. Um, (laughs) Mine are a little bit more practical. There's a hell of a lot of info on there. And I'm the sort of person, if I make a mistake, I'll have to start again. I can't look at it. It will tear my soul apart to stare at it. So I have to. So, so I just found the best way of doing it was was to have a a design design it myself, just a spreadsheet or Word document, and I have it structured and and, and do it like that. And it, and, and it, there's a lot of online research for a regular Premier League game. I wouldn't have to watch so much material, as in you know, YouTube or videos or. You know, all that will do me is watching the matches as the season goes on. I'm obviously au fait with all of the players, so mm-hmm. I've seen nearly all of the all of the games pretty much. So I don't have to do so much of that. But for a tournament, yeah, there's certainly a lot of having a look at uh, the online stuff. And I mean, I'm just looking at the moment at a, a page for Turkey v Italy, which would have been the opening game of the Euros. And um, I, I've got to confess, I don't know an awful lot about. Uh, let's just pick a name. Uh, I'm trying to find one I don't know an awful lot about. Uh, Zeki Celik, who plays for Lille in France, as far as I'm aware, 23 years old, 14 caps, two goals. That's all I've got down at the moment. So I would have to have a look for him and see what he looks like, how he moves, the position that he plays in, uh, little distinguishing features so that I can instantly pick him out looking down from a gantry or looking at a monitor without having to rely on names and numbers, which, although a help, it's not the be-all and end-all because half the time you, you can't distinguish them from where we are anyway. So, so have you ever have you ever been approached then to do – it sounds like you've got just this wide sort of bank of knowledge of the game. Um, have you ever been approached to do opposition analysis? Um, w- once or twice it's happened, um, not by the big clubs, but I've been asked by sort of a couple of lower league clubs just once or twice – in my life, that's that's all, and I really? haven't done it because I simply, sure. I simply wouldn't, I wouldn't know about the opposition, and I, I, you wouldn't have the time to do it. Sure. Um, and I'm not a scout. I'm not a scout. I can find out facts and figures, mm-hmm. but I'm not nearly as skilled as these guys in judging who makes a good player and you know who's going to do what. I couldn't do that. I could, I could identify them and give my appraisal, but it's nothing like the appraisal of somebody who's been skilled in the game and and played it at a high level and then. You know, a trained scout who can detect who would fit into a system and and what have you. Um, no, that's that's beyond my uh, my capabilities. So no, I don't do that. But um, I'd hopefully be able to pick them out. Is is there any like source of information that perhaps yourself or I mean, I'm thinking more other commentators might look at that you tend to avoid that you don't think is necessarily all that reliable. <sighs> uh, well, the obvious answer to that is Wikipedia. Okay. Um, but that's, that's, I mean, that is the obvious answer that sure. springs to mind because obviously, mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of self-generated stuff there that anybody could put something on that's wrong. But you very quickly learn what, what's wrong and what's right on that. And there's plenty of other ways of double-checking them. So in actual fact, for a brief player biog, that is as good a place to start as any. Um, and then all you need to do is double-check the facts. If, if something looks as if it might be wrong or made up, it generally will be. Um, it's, it's not as unreliable as you think. And every sort of website that we use, every tool that we use, is not without its flaws. Some of them are absolutely magnificent in some areas and not so good in other areas. And some aren't updated quite speedily enough. Some will have the formations up 
I'm sure you found this, you know, from previous games and you'll think, well, I was there, but they didn't line up like that. You know, it's because the, only, the person putting that on is only somebody like you or I who's at a game and analyzing it and they mm-hmm. just might have a different idea. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, a, that's another thing for match of the day. Every game we are asked to send our formations in at half time. And sometimes I'll get a call back afterwards and say, oh, it says that, um, on the sky feed or whatever, they had them lining up like this. And I'll just say, well, yeah, that's maybe what they were told and how they interpreted it. I've interpreted it this way. I might have been wrong, but it's it's just what the, the way I thought it was from looking at it. And the hard thing with that sometimes is some of the formations these days, you know, it's not your rigid 4-4-2 every team anymore, mm. as you'll know. So some of the formations, you can't really put down in a graphic that easily. Sure. It, 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 looks all, it looks all over the place on screen um, if you really put it down accurately. And, and as has often been pointed out to me, there's a school of thought that we should go back to a, an old-style diagonal 1-11 lineup um, because, as, be, as has been pointed out to me many times, they move around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not, they're, it's not like table It's not like table football. So um, whether you, you could put somebody on the left wing and somebody on the right wing, and within five minutes of the game started, they have switched flanks never to return. And so somebody watching it will go, they've got that wrong. But at kickoff, that's how they were. Mm. Um, and that's what we tried to do. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a strange sort of science involved in it, which do you, do you, is not, not 100% accurate. Do you think we could ever get to the point, Guy, where perhaps they don't even show the formations before a game? Perhaps even they just maybe go through, I don't know, principles of play or something? Or do you think they will always do some sort of formation? Um, I don't know, actually, because they never used to. It, it was always just a lineup. I did, you know, if you're of a certain age like, like I am, you remember live games. And, and actually, going back through the the World Cup and FA Cup rewind series that I played a part in making for the BBC in recent weeks, um, you look back at the old World Cups and the old FA Cup games, and, and they were just a diagonal or sometimes just a vertical lineup of names. Mm-hmm. Um, club club badge on one side, manager's name underneath, or seleccionadore if it was a, a World Cup in Spain or whatever, um, and they'd have just a, a list of names and and Half them spelt wrong as well, and you'd um, <laughs> you'd uh, yeah there, there were some weird, wonderful ones from the '82 World Cup on the the Spanish host broadcaster graphics. Um, so so they used to do it like that. So I don't know. I, I think there's some value in having a rough idea of how the team's going to set up. It doesn't have to be absolutely right for the points that I've made. They move around, and increasingly, coaches and head coaches they're not going to share. They might tell you what their lineup will be, and um, that still happens occasionally before the game, if you, you're chewing the fat with them in the, the tunnel area sort of an hour and a half before the game, some of them might say, oh, this is the team today. But if you press them a bit further and say, how are you lining up? They're a little more reticent and understandably so. Mm-hmm. Um, why would they want you to know absolutely every cog in the wheel? So um, I, I don't think we'll ever get away from it totally. I think there's some mileage from it. And, and certainly from a commentary point of view, there's a lot of mileage from from knowing the formations because if you are in doubt as to who it is if there's players that look quite similar from a distance or that have a similar number on their shirt knowing where they're supposed to be playing in the formation the the, the, the rigid formation idea is a big help to knowing who it is because if somebody pops up somewhere they shouldn't be by and large the way the game's structured it you've got the player wrong do you i mean i just like to quickly jump on um something that you've mentioned about you know talking to managers and that uh before the game just just i'd be fascinated to hear if there's any sort of qualities that you've picked up on that you seem to find seem to occur with with managers is there anything that they're sort of overarching themes in terms of personalities or traits that you see they're generally in in the premier league they're generally um they're good people to deal with they're they're people 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 (laughs) um okay they all have their little foibles and some after a game after a defeat or a performance don't take kindly to certain 
angles of questioning and, and you know, they make you certainly know that you've asked something stupid if you have. And so they should really. Um, but generally they are, they are people, people, because let's face it at, at the highest level, I, I always say the higher at the level you go, I suppose people like Pep Guardiola have broken this idea slightly, but the higher at the level you go, and when you get into Champions League and international standard football, mm -hmm. the less it is about coaching. These players are the cream of the crop. They don't need telling what to do and how to do it. Um, a bit of tactical nuance, obviously, but um, a few instructions. But it's not about coaching. It's more about the tactical variations and, above all, motivation. So you have to be a man-manager. So that, that that would be the common trait in all the top coaches. They are all well-schooled in dealing with an, a body of men or a body of women in the women's game. Mm -hmm. They know how each individual needs to be spoken to. And I'm, I'm sure that goes with the way that they deal with those of, of us who, who report on the game as well. They will also have identified different traits in different reporters. I, I know for, for a fact that press officers certainly will brief the manager on who it is today who's going to be asking them the questions. Um so they may be ready for a particular line or a particular style of questioning. So I'd like to, to jump back to something right at the beginning as well. Um, you spoke about it being a, a seven-day job guy, and I wondered if you could sort of give mm. us um, an overview, basically, of, of a week um, leading up to a, a game. If I, if, I, if I were to take a, a standard, I'd take a non-European week, because that's easier, um, this will give you an idea. Um, and that, that would be a commentary on a Saturday and a Sunday for, in my case, for BBC Match of the Day mm -hmm. or whoever else it may be, depending on the commentator. Now, a standard week Monday, I would try and, and try and take as much of a day off as I can with my wife because she doesn't work Mondays. So that's, um, that's ideal. So our Mondays are weekend. Magic Mondays are a thing to say. <laughs> um, but that said, if I've been doing two games that weekend and I've been traveling back on the Sunday night, I will still first thing Monday morning, the first thing I will do is I keep appearance and goal stats for every single Premier League team and three or four other teams besides. Um, so I will update all my stats, first of all, which is at least an hour or so um, for it to sink in properly. And that's something I've done for 20 years or so, ever since I started covering top division football. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I have to do it. There's no reason why I should do it particularly. It's not handed in to anybody. Nobody sees it. But I find just by doing that, I'm instantly aware, for a start, of every player's squad number. Okay. Because once you've done it for three or four weeks, by the time you get to October in a season, you know every player's squad number at every club. So that's a help in commentary. You also know, roughly, you know, off the top of your head, pretty much how many games they've played as well. Yeah. So I keep all those. Um, that would be the first thing. And then the rest of the week would be, I, I would maybe go back over the weekend's games first of all and... And, and have a think. Well, I'd certainly have a debrief with our, our producers and see if there's anything that I picked up on or they picked up on. Then we'd get into the the looking ahead. And I'm not so great at remembering games that I've done because there are that many games that come and go so fast in normal circumstances. Not now, obviously. That um, you're on to the next, and that they're, they're done. Those ones that you've done have gone. So I would be prepping the Saturday and the Sunday all week. Um, I used to have a rule of thumb that for any game that you prepped it would take two full days work to prep the game properly um i don't put a time scale on it now because it, it just varies from game to game um and i would start compiling piling all the information looking at things that i needed to look at and doing everything i could in the build-up to either traveling on the friday night or first thing saturday morning and, and off we go the weekends on now you factor in european weeks when i would on a regular european week do a champions league game on a tuesday on a wednesday and a europa league game on a thursday and then you start to see that the workload builds up mm -hmm. a little bit 
So it's all about planning ahead. So as an example, here we are on it's just at the beginning of May. I would now, I would have my schedule now. May's a little bit different because it's the end of the season, but I would have my schedule now for the next two weekends. The final weekend might be a little bit different because we wouldn't know where the issues were to be decided. So I wouldn't quite know where I was going. But at the start of any given month, I would know where I was going for the rest of that month. So I wouldn't be just prepping the games coming up that week. I'd be going, I'd, I'd have about five or six games on the go prepping all at once, which um, it gets a little bit tedious at times when you get into the chunk of the season because it's the same sort of repetitive sure. thing. But then you'll find a, li a little nugget of info that gets you interested again or you'll cover a team you haven't covered for a long time or ever, sometimes in Europe. And then it becomes interesting again and the spark lights again because you'll, you'll start researching players you don't know. So it, it does have moments like any job where it gets a little bit pedestrian and routine. Any job does. Um, but there's always something very, very quickly that sparks you back into this is a very, very good thing to be doing. Do, do you feel the, the groundwork that you put in before a game perhaps adds to, I mean, adds to your anticipation before a game? Or are you at a point now where you've seen so many games that it doesn't really have that anymore? It does. It does. Um, the, the way I would phrase that is it certainly means I very, very rarely see a bad game because even if it's an absolute stinker <laughs> and everybody else is telling you how terrible it is, I I have put in that I can always find something in it. I can dig back through all my notes and have a look down and I'll find some angle to approach it from that I can find some enjoyment from. Um, yeah, it might not be, again, it's easy on the eye, but I was only talking about this yesterday. We were reminiscing about the, the Sergio Aguero goal in 2012. And yeah, okay, that was a game that had everything anyway. But you can watch any game and it can be terrible. But in the blink of an eye, with the last kick, it can change and suddenly be memorable forever for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Um, good or bad if it's your team or just a moment just a piece of skill and that, that's the joy of the sport to me so you never know what's going to happen and and that's why the prep comes into its own because not only does it help with player identification but I think it helps with the enjoyment and I hope it adds I know in a lot of cases it gets on people's nerves I understand that and people have their favorites and they generally don't budge from that you hear somebody once and that's it that you either like them or you hate them it doesn't matter what they do from that point on I understand that all I can say is none of us are trying to get on anybody's nerves. We're all trying to please every single person who is watching, hopefully. Sure. Sometimes sometimes we overdo it. Sometimes we put far too many stats in. I know that it's something you try and temper in yourself. But if it's a bad game, you use a lot because there's not a lot happening. So you might try and make it a bit more interesting by throwing a bit of info in. Try and cherry pick the best bits. If it's a good game, a really good game, 90 plus percent of what you've prepped probably isn't going to be used. Right. But it's still been worthwhile because it's, it's helped in your base knowledge to be able to deliver the game mm. properly. So it's never ever for nothing. Even if, you know, you could have five or six things that when you prepped it, you went, Oh, wow, that's good. That's good. Oh, I might get that into the commentary. Then you forget all about it when the game starts because it's that good. You can't do much else other than just call what you're seeing. Um, a lot of people would want, want us to do that every single time, by the way. And, and I get that. And, and I grew up in an era where commentators effectively, it's a, it's a disparaging term, and I don't mean it disparagingly because I am one, but they were name mm. callers. Um, they, they, they said the names of the players and, and kind of not, not a lot else. Um, I think we've, we've moved on. If I just did that now, I would be absolutely hounded out <laughs> of business because people would say he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't know anything. Because I think people watching now are armed with so much knowledge. The internet has done this. Everybody, even if... Even if we watched a game from overseas tomorrow, we would have an inkling um, of who was who and what was what because of the knowledge that's available at our fingertips. Um, whereas in the past, you even went to World Cups 
you know, you, you could even watch a World Cup match and it could, it could even be Italy v Brazil, say, and you'd watch it and you wouldn't know half the players because you didn't have the internet, you didn't see them. You'd, a lot of them didn't play for European clubs in Brazil's case back then. So there was, there was an element of the mystery and the, the, the exotic about it then. And, and actually, I miss that. I'd, I'd, I wish that was the case now, but as we know, it's a very, very small world now. What does, what does your, um, match day look like? I mean, are, are you able to make notes during games? Guy, or are you literally just calling it as you see it? Uh, scribbled, scribbled ones, not not um, not hugely detailed ones. I'll, I'll make a note of goals and goal times or key incidents. Um, if I'm if I'm lucky and I'm doing a game, I'll have a floor manager with me. Certain networks supply them, and certain ones don't. And if you have a floor manager with you, part of their job is to to log certain bits mm-hmm. of the game. So uh, you know, counting corners, counting key incidents, which helps more than anything with as it goes on a, a sort of back summation as you get towards the end of the game and with your post-match interview, if you're doing the interviews as well, it helps to have a little frame of what happens so you can go back through it a little bit more. When you're on your own, it's not quite so easy. I might have to get to the stage of having my uh, my phone on during games and having a, a, a page, a, a match report page up so I can keep up with the stats. That, that might right. be the way to go. I, I'm of the school where I was always taught, once you start, you turn your phone off in case it rings. So <laughs> I, I've never... I've, ne- I've never deviated from that because I do have a group of friends who would take great delight in uh, making my phone go off at high volume midway through a key game. So. Do, you, do you feel, because um, obviously, I mean, so when you're not by yourself, when you're with someone else, you're often with a, an ex-pro. Do you feel that, Yeah. I mean, firstly, the pros now with, as you said, people have so much information going into games are perhaps... Uh, a little bit more reluctant to give their opinion, or do you find that the pros are now doing as much work as you in their prep before commentating? Uh, d- depends who it is. Um, th- again, a bit like commentators, they all have their different ways okay. of doing it. So, some like to be schooled with all the notes. Um, some like me to send them mine before we start um, or the day before. Uh, some would rather just, you know what, I'm not going to clutter my mind with that. I'm just going to watch the match because my job is to analyse. I would say my job is what, their job is why. So they don't need to particularly get cluttered up with numbers. It might help them just to, to know about the players a little bit, but th- their job is not to get cluttered up with that. Their job is to just see what's happening on the field and tell us why it might be happening from their position of having played X number of games at the top level or internationally. So um, I, I much prefer working with a co-commentator than without because it's more fun for a start. You, you're engaged in a conversation with somebody you like, somebody you respect. So that that's a fun part of it. And you're not having to put sort of self self-analysis in you know in a match of the day commentary i tend to have to analyze the penalty calls etc myself which still after all these years is it's arbitrary and a little bit intimidating when you've got fifty thousand fans well many thousands of them actually within eardrop of you shouting at you saying it was a penalty what are you talking about <laughs> um that that actually and that actually is something i've been conscious of over the last few weeks thinking about if we do return behind closed doors depending on where we are in the stadium and the gantries our, our voices will be quite audible to people of um, positions of influence at the football clubs. Uh, and they might not take kindly to some of the things we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had an incident, um, well, not an incident, nothing happened with it because I didn't say anything wrong. But I remember the old gantry at, at Portsmouth, which was, it used to be right on top of the players' tunnel at Fratton Park. I don't know if it still is, I've not been for years. And it was sort of right in front of the director's box. It was literally just sort of a little old-fashioned platform gantry right in front of where the directors, the chairman was sitting. And one Portsmouth game, I, I turned around mid-commentary and I hadn't turned around at any point, about 15 minutes into the game and discovered Milan Mandaric who's sitting right <laughs> behind me. Harry Redknapp is next to him, the Portsmouth manager. 
And then on the other side, there was the, the, the late, great George Best, who was a, a close personal friend of Milan Mandrich. And I thought, oh, my God, I better get this right today. <laughs> 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 what, what an audience. Now, now I'm actually bigging myself a little bit up a little bit too much there because as if they were paying a blind bit of notice to what I was saying. But it, it did just put that thought sure. in your mind for a, for a second. I mean, so we speak about sort of uh, analysis developing, particularly in recent years, and how perhaps uh, people are moving away from looking at just your basic things like possession into to more, um, I, I want to say complex ideas. But I mean, I'd, I'd be firstly really interested to hear your opinion in analysis. And I, one thing I wanted to ask you about was your thoughts on things like expected goals. And then also whether you think commentary is changing because of this and if you're adapting to that change. Um, well, I'll, I'll touch on the expected goals straight away. Um, I was a big critic of it at first. I, I don't get it. I didn't get the point of it. I thought this is ridiculous. Um, I understand how it, I understand it now. I do understand it a little bit better now. Um, I'm still not sure I totally mm -hmm. agree with it. Um, because I think I, I essentially it is a human game and it's almost going into the realms of football manager. And I think there's quite a lot of people watching games now. It's also fantasy football as well. It's that sort of thing. They're watching games with a, with an idea and, and the betting markets as well. They're watching games with an idea that, well, this should happen and this should happen. But it's not like a computerized program. That that's They are humans. There will be mistakes, like, like in any industry, any job. So I don't, I don't really like the numbers all that much, mm -hmm. if I'm totally honest. Um, analysis on performance and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and as I've been talking about formations and things earlier, that's, and tactics, that's a different thing. But some of the stats just leave me a little mm -hmm. bit cold. And, and one of the basic stats, one of the basic stats that leaves me incredibly cold is, uh, the assist, which to me is an Americanized thing that has come into our game relatively recently. Um, we didn't used to call it that. We used to just call it who made the goal. We didn't, we didn't call it an assist, did we? We call it goals being made. Now, we know that the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, David Silva, uh, when he played Teddy Sheringham, that we know that they make a hell of a lot of Cesc Fabregas. We know they make a hell of a lot of goals. That's how they play. We don't need to be told that with numbers. And one example I'll give you is my goal of the season so far was Son Heung-min for Spurs against Burnley in December. He ran from the edge of his own penalty area, beat everybody and put the ball in the net. I can't remember who it was, but whoever tapped the ball two yards to him gets an assist for that. Right. And that gets mm. logged. And I think that's farcical. That, that just makes a mockery mm. of the whole thing. Um, you could have a goalkeeper who just punt downfield by some fluke. It might not touch anybody and then striker picks it up and puts it in. Goalkeeper gets an assist. Nonsense. I, 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 I'm not big on the numbers do, like that. Do you that. think, um, um yeah, they're just leaving. sorry, uh, guy. Do you think perhaps it'd be a, a change yeah, in definition might might made that a bit better? Or well, I think in, it, I think we need to rephrase it so certain mm -hmm. ones don't count. Yeah, you, but again, that makes it a lot more complicated because everything has to be looked. Much everything is looked at over and over again, I suppose. But and who would make that decision? That's the other thing. That, that again is an arbitrary thing, I guess. So I, I understand why it's there. I just don't. I just don't really. I don't really. I don't really go with them that much. We we don't need to be told that Cesc Fabregas made a hell of a lot of goals in the Premier League. We know that by watching football. And I prefer watching the players rather than the numbers behind okay. the players. Yeah, there's a lot of people making decisions on who's good and who's bad. I, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, another thing is, it's. I'm a big fan of playing football manager, by the way, especially in London. <laughs> but you get, a lot of, you get a lot of faux experts who think they could be a manager in real life because they're good at that. 
and, and I'm genuine. There are people who think they know everything because they've done well at that game. They're missing one fundamental. These are humans. It's mm. not a program. <laughs> and that, that's yeah. So I'm not. I'm not. Not totally big on. I suppose I've confused analysis with statistics. I, I, I'm fine with the analysis mm -hmm. of the football, the stats and the numbers. I'm not particularly. Well, I mean, I've just got to jump on that really quick, guy, because I'm sure people will be wanting wanting to know who uh, do you go with on Football Manager. I, I always go oh, with York okay. City, um, and I play it properly. Start in National League <laughs> North. I'm I'm I don't play it much in the course of a season, quite honestly, because it, it, it interferes sure. with real life too much. You know, I get confused though, and I, I genuinely did get confused once in a Champions League game involving Edgar Davids. Because I, there he is turning out for Juventus. And I'm thinking, Edgar Davids, he plays for Real Madrid. Why is he playing for Juventus? And I was doing my notes. I said, he plays for Real Madrid. And it was in my, ga in my game he did. And, and, you do, and you, it, real life can blur a little bit. So I don't play it throughout the course of the season. But I've got back into it over the last few weeks. So I, mm -hmm. I started with York. And I, it's, this has become a bit of a saga on, on social media, actually. Because I started with York and my hometown team, the team I support, and I had them in a playoff place. Well, we were third, actually. Third in National League North with seven games of the season to go. And they oh, sacked me. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And at that level of the game, when you're starting in, in the sixth tier, you, you then sort of just click continue for ages because there aren't many teams willing to have a go on you because you've not done anything. So um, eventually Tamworth came up <laughs> and, and I got the Tamworth job. Same division. Same division. Uh, their, their only wish, they had, they had meagre money. York expected promotion. Tamworth just wanted to escape relegation. Uh, well, in my first season, I got to the playoff semi-finals and um, narrowly lost. I'm nearing the end of my second full season in charge now. And we are three points away from a playoff place. It's been a little bit harder. They still haven't got any money. I'm having to real, really scrape for signings. And I've realised I can't do anything. I, I, I've applied for a couple of jobs. I don't get them. So I've I'm going to resign at the end of the season oh. if we don't go up. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lambs fans, but that's the way it is. I've, I, they, they, they can't. They've done their best with me. I've done their best for them, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to. So what I'll do is, if we don't go up, I'm going to resign. I'm going to uh, tap continue a few times, apply for a few jobs, and if I don't get one at a good level of the National League North or higher, then uh, I'm afraid it's reset and start again. And I think when I start again, what I'm going to do is, I think there's an option where they will just allocate you a team. There you go. I'll do that. Uh, See where we go. My, might even be abroad. Oh, <laughs> I'm forward to this already. Um, so, I mean, I, I have a feeling I might know the answer to this one already, but one thing I wanted to ask you guys is whether you think that the, the role of the co-commentator uh, or even studio pundit might change. Um, do you think it will be more in the content you know, they deliver or, or the actual people? Because, I mean, I know that BT have had the likes of James Horncastle and Rafa Honigstein in the studio this season. So... Perhaps mm -hmm. on top of that, do you believe ex-pros are the best people to have in these roles? Or do you think there is a, um, certainly a market for your analysts or your uh, journalists? Oh, there's, a, there's a market for all of it. I'll, well, I'll say that with a caveat and touch, touch wood and keep my fingers crossed because we don't know in what form football is going to return at the moment. So we don't know where the markets are going to be and, and, and what will be needed and what will be on. But yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly a space for, for everybody who knows what they're talking about to, to have their slot and inform and entertain us so ab absolutely and um, as regards that you've, you've summed it up yourself there you're saying it will the role change it's always changing every year all the networks are looking to try and do something a little bit different with every season with almost week by week program by program so um that's a naturally evolving role so um that there'll always be a need and in, in recent years you've seen a much bigger clamor of pros particularly from the top level um to get into it 
it almost seems to be the more popular choice mm-hmm. of going down the coaching route now. Um, in fact, I think it is. So th- there'll always be people wanting to do it. My only worry is, how's it going to look when we come back? Hopefully, the sooner the better, and, and that means we can we can carry on and carry on giving football to everybody. It, it, mm-hmm. There might be more of it. There might be less of it. I, I don't know. It's just what the public want, I guess. That, that's right. that's what will determine it. I mean, how much how much has the game changed since you've been commentating? I mean, specifically within the Premier League guy. I mean, what ways has has the Premier League changed since you've first started commentating? Um, faster, year on year, every every season, really faster than the last. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's without a doubt and you only really notice it when you go back 20 years and watch the games from the 90s now um subtle changes year year on year but i i definitely think it gets faster every season um when you look back you think wow that's that's totally different when you look back at the 80s as well that's that's even slower and and i loved it that's my era that's the era i grew up in and the era era of football i absolutely adore but um i also think it's better now um I'm I'm not one for comparisons. I know it's a fun game to play in the pub, and you know, would George Best have been the greatest player in this era? Would so and so? Well, we'll never know, and we we don't need to know because it's never going to happen. All you can do is be as good as you can be in your era, um, and and that's all you can hope to be. So I I don't really agree with those cross sort of um, cross pollination of mm-hmm. different football eras. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say it's certainly faster. But while we're on it, I don't even agree with, with personally things like um, Ballon d'Ors and Player of the Years and things like that. Individual individual awards in a team wow, sport okay. really wash with me. I, I just don't, I, you know, Lionel Messi, best player in the world. Absolutely. Or, or Ronaldo, take your pick in that debate. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Best player in the world. Can't play centre-back though, can he? Can't play on his own. <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's, it's not. Yeah. I appreciate what a genius he is. And yeah, best player in the world. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. I'll take that. Sure. But it's a team game, and and that's that's how I would always interesting always look at it. I mean, you see, obviously, seen a huge amount of football games, and I wondered if there was a philosophy or style of football that you have particularly taken a, a shining to. Are there any teams that maybe stand out in your history of commentating where you felt like you really connected with their style of play? Yeah, a couple. Um, for all I've just been saying about how tactics evolve, I am very much a four four two merchant. Um, I partly because, as I say, I'm a born in 1972 I am a child of the 80s and the 90s and I love wingers I've always adored a team that played with mm-hmm. two proper wingers be they inverted you can stick a right footer on the left hand side and vice versa be they natural take them on down the outside and put a cross in and a strike partnership and um, I, I think part of that was my sort of I don't want to say breakthrough it sounds too grand but um when I was at uh, Metro Radio in the Northeast and I covered Sunderland matches home and away for five seasons, didn't miss a game, and I adored that time. It was the Peter Reid era. It was Quinn and Phillips. There was Nicky Summerby down the right, uh, Alan Johnston down the left, supported by mm-hmm. Mickey Gray, who was playing left back for Sunderland, ex-winger, and Chris Makin, right back. Um, and the football that team played, one below the Premier League this was, don't forget, in, in narrowly missing promotion and then getting promotion with 100 points the following season. Um, the football was magnificent. Johnston cutting in with Gray on the overlap. Summerby putting in the quality of cross that arguably only David Beckham could match. Summerby was the sort of player who could put in a cross without having to beat. He didn't have pace, but he didn't have to beat the fullback. He would curl it around him. And then you've got Niall Quinn waiting in the middle and Kevin Phillips waiting for the knockdowns. And I, I loved that football. I, I really did. It was fast. It was exciting. And they were a cut above the rest of the teams in that division at the time as well. So that helped. That was exciting. 
And then a totally sort of different style is I go back to, I think possibly the best football I've ever seen a team play would be uh, Euro 2012, the Spain team that followed on from their World Cup win by winning the Euros in Kiev and destroying mm-hmm. Italy in the final. And that 4-0 win in the final was possibly the most complete team performance I've ever seen. It was mesmerising. It was just utterly mesmerising. The way they... And ultimately, mm-hmm. we called it ticky-tacker, didn't we? But it was ultimately just pass and move. Just the way they passed the ball and moved. And the, the possession was... It was it was a thing of beauty to watch, and I think it was I think it had its time actually. That I think it was beautiful to watch, but then then everybody became too focused on possession for possession's sake and not getting anywhere. That Spain team had had the finishing touches as well. It seemed as though they could score at will. You know, David Villa scoring most of them. So so yeah, that that was another team that I could have watched forever. I remember that final finishing, and a lot of times when you see a final or you see a game that's four nil, and you think, well, that wasn't so good. That was a little bit one sided, wasn't it? But that one wasn't. I wouldn't have minded if they won twelve nil. I could have watched it all night. I've got, I've got it's just uh, brilliant. One, one more question for myself, and I've got some quick fire ones that the uh, staff of Total Football Analysis wanted to, okay. to ask. But uh, the last one for me, guys. Obviously, you've been all around the world to watch football, and I wondered if, if, despite the many different cultures that you've experienced in doing so, whether football and the attitude towards it differs greatly in different countries or even continents, or whether you see a lot of similarity. A lot of similarities, um, and World Cups. Tell us that every single time the world comes together. You know, you look at the last three that have been in places as diverse as South Africa, Brazil, Russia, three totally different um, places to live and, and be and exist in. Um, but it brings everybody together. We, the instances in Russia where we were in parts of, in Volgograd, I remember, um, where, where we stumbled, a, stumbled <laughs> into a bar. Sounds wrong, doesn't it? Um, but we're, 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 we're we're in a bar watching the match. I remember we're watching um, we're watching Argentina against Croatia because it was the one where um, Willy Caballero had an absolute shock. Um, so we're watching that game in in a in a bar and um, got got the attention of a couple of Russian football fans. It was actually a, a bloke and his son who were watching the game with us. He hardly spoke. Well, he didn't speak a word of English, but through it, there's a common language, and we managed to communicate for the next two or three hours. Um, and he ended up buying us a bottle of local hooch which um myself and martin <laughs> keon struggled with to be honest but, uh, but but there we go it was a very good night very, very nice of him and all that yeah it sort of hands across the world so a lot of similarities the passion is the same i say the same it, different nuances different styles of it but the passion is unrivaled everywhere throughout the world um it, it's it's fantastic um brazil the dancing, the colour, Russia, the the raw passion, just the general interest. Um, and South Africa was just something else as well, a, a country you might not necessarily associate with football, but it absolutely came alive for the sport during the tournament. So it doesn't matter where you go in the world, football is a such a unifying force that there are so many similarities all over the world. There's a certain certain raw that's different. I think when a winning goal goes in in the last minute in a, in a big game in Scotland... Or a big Champions League game. Okay, I've got these, these quick fire questions the that some of the other uh, writers for Total Football Analysis almost guttural wanted rules. to ask you. So I thought I'd do it in a quick so, yes, fire uh, d- setting where depending on I'm just going to fire away and see what you I'll be very quick. Yeah, different atmospheres. All right, let's do it. Best player? Zinedine Zidane. Do you need an explanation? Do you need an explanation? Do you know what? You, if, you, if you want to give an explanation, absolutely go for it. No, you can, you can have your Messi, you can have your Ronaldo, but the 98 World Cup was a really big deal for me. It was the first one I covered as a commentator and um, 
he lit it up and he did things. He would be the first player that I would stop everything to watch. A little bit like in cricket terms, when Kevin Peterson came out to bat, all the bars emptied. Um, you know, you'd, you'd do stop everything to go and watch him. Zidane did things that I only saw players do at the time on uh, games consoles. Um, it, for such a big guy as well, he was almost balletic. So, um, yeah, Zinedine Zidane. Brilliant. Okay. Um, best player for off-the-ball movement to create space for others that you've seen? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Off the top of my head, the, the, the instant thought I had uh, was Sergio Aguero. Okay. For his movement, his movement just to be in the positions that he's in and to get the goals that he gets. I think his movement is, um, is outstanding. Okay. Uh, I think this one's my, my favourite question. The player that when you first saw them, you thought, wow, they've got something, and then they never made it. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm going to have to look him up. I've got my computer on here. <laughs> Go on. But I'm going to have to. I'm going to. Have, I'm going to have to look him up because this was a game in the '90s, and it was Partizan Belgrade. Ah, oh, what was he called? And he shared his name with another player as well. Um, there were two players of the same name. I can't remember him. He was a midfielder for Partizan Belgrade, and he did play for Croatia, but he just didn't quite crack on. Um, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember off the top of my head his name, but he was a sort of a number four quality midfielder. In more recent terms, what I can remember was when I saw him play as a 17, 18-year-old for Porto, Ruben Neves immediately knew, oh, this kid is going to be a proper star. And I think he's been superb with Wolves in the Premier League the last two years. Okay. So, I mean, that Neves was one one that made it, but the, the Croatian one was one that didn't really... Oh, yeah, of course. Ne- Neves, Neves... Okay, let's... Neves is making it. Yeah. <laughs> let's, not say made, let's not say made it just yet. Yeah. Certainly made okay, it. Okay, true. Yeah, we're going to get some angry Wolves fans uh, otherwise. Um, okay. Here's, here's a good one. Best, best game, but possibly if there's one that initially comes to mind that perhaps people wouldn't necessarily think of straight away. Oh, dear me. Um, best games for commentators are not best games for viewers necessarily. Um, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying that in terms of showing off the commentator's skill in quotes um, because the, the, the ones that commentators should win awards for are the nil-nils that stink the place out but you keep people interested and find different angles but they never win awards those. It's always the 5-4 thrillers that win awards. Um, so I'm trying to think. Best game. Best game. That, that's a really hard one. Um, best game. I always go back to best I'm, game. I'm really testing you here. Yeah, aren't I? I always go back to best game in my life, the one I've enjoyed most was Sunderland Charlton playoff final in 98, the 4-4 draw and the penalty shootout at Wembley. Um, that just had a huge impact on me personally and professionally. It was was an amazing game. So that's one of the games I've enjoyed most, but it is a reasonably obvious one, I admit. Um, I can't think. It might, it might, um, a ball might come on in the next few minutes. We, we, we'll take the, um, we'll take the, um, the Charlton Sunday game. That's a, that's a, that's a good answer. Okay. Um, the, okay, I, I don't want to get you in trouble with any of your co-commentary friends, but favourite co-commentator? <laughs> well, all of them. <laughs> all of them. And, and I would, you can't I, say I, that, I can't come say on. Because, you know, I, I generally, they all, they, all, they all bring different things and they all have very different personalities. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to say, hopefully, that I, I get on with all of them as well. So um, that, that's... That's a good thing. Um, I, I'm going to pick it. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick a name then, and and I will go for. It might, might be reasonably obvious because uh, he's 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 a good friend, and we had such good times touring the world. I'll say Mark Lawrence. Um, 
and and Laura. No, I'll say Laura because because Laura to me is a for goodness sake. What didn't he win? He won the lot and was a Rolls Royce of a footballer. So the respect has to be there immediately. And also, it was it was funny every time. He, he, football's entertainment, and I understand. Again, we go back to an earlier topic of conversation. Some of the new generation of football manager stats merchants are also po-faced and serious about the game. Loro put a bit of humour in there, and why not? Why not? It's football's an entertainment business, and it used to have me in stitches. I sometimes used to look at it and think, where the hell is this going? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it used, it used to have me in absolute stitches. Um, there is actually a thing that goes there on in some. There's something goes on the internet saying so we didn't get. I was on. literally it's, about to mention it's it. <laughs> absolute, it's it's it actually winds me up something rotten because it's an absolute load of rubbish. It's just nonsense, and it's based on one incident in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and it is an incident where I dropped my pen in the middle of the game. As I bent down to pick it up, I smashed my head on the desk. As I then put my head back up, my knee came up and smashed the underside of the desk, and I was finding it hard to speak. And he looked at me, and he was funny how to speak because he was in his stoves, and he just said, you're right. And I could hardly talk, and I just went, <laughs> yes, yes, thanks. And that was it. And we were in stitches. We were just trying to stifle the laughter. Now, somebody decided to interpret that as, oh, listen to this terse exchange. Ooh, pa-. And I've heard oh, stupid intellectual comments like, oh, listen how passive-aggressive this is. It's a load of crap. We were just trying not to collapse into fits of laughter. That was it. That's it. And that was all it was. But uh, it's still there. Can't do anything about it. And it's a load of it's a load of it's a load of utter utter tosh. <laughs> well, I always do. You know what though? I think it's interesting that they put that spin on it because I think when I when I first heard it, I just presumed it was too like I, I didn't take it in that way necessarily. I thought you were just sort of giving each other a bit of stick as such and. Um, Friendly banter, as it were, and, and that happens as well. By the way, and yeah, and that and that happens as well, and and that's the best thing when you're familiar. Danny Murphy does it to me all the time, and, and when you're familiar with somebody, you have a laugh. You can take the piss. That's the point, and 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 they can do it a lot more because of their standing in the game. I I can't do it back quite so much because they can put me away very very easily. One show is your medals later, and I'm toast. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a laugh, and I, football should be. It should be fun. I think I think linked to that as well. This this question's from my dad. All right, uh, <laughs> he wants to know whether commentators have a sort of little bet between each other whether they can fit certain phrases into games. <laughs> oh, if I had a quid every time that was said to me, um, <laughs> it's something that comes up every so often. Usually at tournaments. Sometimes I might go for a drink in my local on a Friday night, and somebody will say, "Can you get this word in?" And you know what? To humour people, you say, I'll try. And, of course, you don't. You just forget all about it. Um, no, you don't. You don't. You f- once the game starts, I, don't, I can't speak for others, but once the game starts, if anybody's set me any challenge like that, one, it would be pretty unprofessional of me to be thinking about that all the way through the game. And two, I just generally, I get, I get, I get wrapped up in the game and I, I completely forget about it. I, I just completely forget about it. So, uh, no is the short answer. That Actually, book, bookies, this is, there's another serious side to this. Bookies actually try at major tournaments to put markets on it and say at the handover if the first words the commentator says are these and you can bet on it so people will ring me up and say oh say this at the start and i can't get involved in anything like that so uh, no <laughs> no is the short and safe answer yeah <laughs> there you go ever ever the professional um best goal you've ever seen oh 
oh god I only just answered this the other day and um, oh there's just so many this season Son I've already mentioned it Spurs against Burnley um, I like the goals that you I like the goals you don't see and by that I mean I mean I'm going to discount your 25 yard 30 yard thronkers in off the bar because we we could all do that one in a thousand hits we might just connect and it would fly in I like the goals that the Joe Public can't score. Son skinning everybody on the field to run full length. That goal. Maradona against England, 86. The other one. That goal. Um, Robin Van Persie's diving header at the World Cup in 2014. That sort of goal. Uh, Frank Worthington. That was one that stood out in my childhood. Um, playing for Bolton against, I think it was Ipswich. I know Bolton lost the game. It's the one where he juggles it on the edge of the box with his back to goal and then lobs it over his head, turns, and the two defenders are left stranded. And he just pops the ball in. Um, Gaza, Euro 96. Those sorts of goals that are dependent on a moment of genius. They're, they're, they're my favourites. The different ones. Um, so that, that, there's, a, there's a selection. Um, that, that, a, goal, a goal now, and the reason I picked Son out, I don't suppose it'll even win goal of the season, but we see so many where we say, what a goal. And it could be a free kick. It could be, a, as I say, a, just a banging volley from 30 yards or whatever. But when you see a goal and you think, I don't see that anymore. That's fantastic. I, I, I'm a particular sucker for a diving header. I do like a diving header because we don't see them as much as we used to at all. So um, if anybody could do a Keith Houchin when, the, uh, when football resumes from the 1987 FA Cup final, if somebody could replicate that sort of goal, that would, that would be top of my list. There you go. He's, he's put the gauntlet down. Um, Favourite stadium and both worldwide and in England? At the moment, I've got a new one. It has to be Tottenham. Um, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is absolutely outstanding. I think it's got everything that a modern stadium of that size needs for both fans, media, players, officials. I think nothing has been left out. The attention to detail is magnificent. And that stand, that massive wall that goes back all the way to the cockerel on the top. Even the cockerel on the top is a nice touch. So, um, yeah, I, I, do, I do like the Tottenham Stadium. Um, Newcastle to work at. Um, from, from a commentator's point of view, I love the position that we're in. I love the room we've got, the space, the great big table to put your notes on. Um, that's the easiest one I, I work at, I would say, Newcastle. Uh, and then other favourites would be, again, oh, it makes me realise how lucky I am when I say the names. The American are, um, it was always a childhood dream to visit and to go for the Confederations Cup 2013 and then again for the World Cup the next year. Um, what... Not only is it one of the wonders of the world itself, but from your position, seated in the stand to do your commentary, you look up and see one of the actual wonders of the world from your seat in the, the Christ the Redeemer statue. So I mean, that, that just makes it amazing. And the first ever ground I commentated on outside this country for a big game, which was the um, for Eurosport back in the 90s, I did the Spanish Cup final between, uh, I think at the time it was uh, Louis van Gaal's Barcelona against Hector Cooper's Real Mallorca. Um, and that was at Valencia's. That was at Valencia's Mestalla, and I was like a giddy school kid because it was the first time that I'd, I'd gone abroad to cover a game. It was a massive game, and the, my breath was taken away by the steepness of the banking of the stands in the Mestalla. It is the steepest stadium I've ever been in. I, I, I swear you could be at the top tier, right at the back, and you're still pretty close to the pitch. If you, I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it if you suffer from any sort of vertigo. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned uh, Newcastle and obviously you have your allegiances or some allegiances to 
Sunderland. Um, I wondered how you feel about uh, the Saudi takeover at Newcastle. Um, until it happens, I've, I've, I've not paid it that much thought. Um, there are obviously parts of it that are a little bit unsavoury. Uh, I'm sure you could say that for quite a few owners of quite a few clubs if we really delved into it. Um, I, I'm not. I'm a real traditionalist. I'm not comfortable with any football club being owned by outside sources. If it was up to me, it would still be the days of the local man who had a successful business and happened to be a massive football fan as well and ran the football club. Every club would have that. Um, I would fit into the the supposed fit and proper persons test uh, rather than it being all about finance. I would somehow structure in there some questions, it, it, you know, a sit-down interview with the Premier League and they would ask them some questions about the, the history and traditions of the club and if the proposed people taking over couldn't answer them, then sorry, you, you don't deserve to have it because you, you're not the owners, you are custodians. Clubs belong to fans. Um, people will put in money and yes, please, yes, absolutely, everybody wants that, but um, to me, you are, you are mere custodians until somebody else comes along. If you can run it successfully, if you can make money and you can make it a successful product, um, absolutely fine, brilliant, great. Every fan would love that. But um, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with people owning football clubs who didn't, okay, I won't, I won't go so far as saying grow up, but who aren't dyed-in-the-wool fans of that club. I, th- I think you should be. I think you should have uh, a greater attachment emotionally than, than one that's pure financial. I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. I know that's, I know that's, I know it's pathetic. It's pie in the sky. It's not the real world, but it's the, it's 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 the romantic world I'd like to live in. No, I don't think so. I think it's a nice way of putting it. I've got I've got two more questions. If that's all right, uh, guy. Um, okay, what what do you think England's starting midfield should be in Euro twenty twenty one? Oh dear me! Well, we're a year away now, aren't we? So it gives us a little bit more leeway. Um, somebody might break through in that time. Um, Goodness me, let me think. Um, it's quite a hard one to pick out off the top of my head. Uh, I think Jordan Henderson, if he's fit and firing, should be leading the midfield. Uh, Defensive, they're going with a four or a three, of course. Uh, I guess he would go with a three. As, yeah, let's go with as a three. He's been doing. Mm-hmm. If you go with a three, I would have, at the moment, and I can, obviously you can only go on at the moment, I would probably have Henderson as the uh, the anchor and the linchpin of it all. I would, I would think put James Madison in there. Um, it might be a toss-up between Madison or Grealish. Grealish's fortunes, we will have to wait and see after what's been happening in the last few weeks as well. Um, and if he's fit and on form, oh, I suppose he'd be playing in uh, as one of the front three. I was going to say, if he's fit and on form, if he can get back to something like, then I'd have Deli Ali in most teams that I would have. But um, I think he's a bit of a way off just at the moment. Um, yeah, it's, that's a tough one because we are a year away now, um, and I'm just, I just look at the I look at the list of midfielders that have played under Gareth Southgate so far, and um, actually, dare I say, I wonder if midfield might be the area where we're just found wanting a little bit at the moment. Interesting. Okay, I might have to ask you that question again this time next year, guy. Um, okay, last question: If Pep were to leave, who should replace him? Oh dear me! Um, oh goodness me! Um, oh, that's, uh, well, the, the, the money seems to be on Maurizio Pochettino going to Newcastle at the moment, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> which we don't know. I mean, if it, if it were to me, Steve Bruce 
has done a wonderful job and should keep that job for a long, long time. I, I think he did. I think actually, sorry, it's another question. I know, but Steve Bruce deserves the chance with what he's done for Newcastle from being the enemy when he was appointed to it all being a little bit quieter and people thinking, actually, you know what, with what he's got and what he's had to go through, he's actually not done a bad job. I think he deserves the chance to finally manage a club with funds, significant funds to spend. Um, and let's just see. Um, so that, that's a that's a personal thing. Uh, Manchester City, if they got if Pep Guardiola left, goodness me. Mikel Arteta's gone. I think he was being schooled for it. Um, who knows? There are rumours at the moment out there of Xabi Alonso coming in as a number two, and I wonder if maybe again he could emerge. Um, I think they'd like to keep it in house somehow and keep the keep it going if they could. Brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Guy, for answering all those questions, particularly those difficult quick-fire ones at the end. We had to really think on your feet. So, um, yeah, I didn't do them very quickly, sorry. I, I've talked a lot, but I can blame that on, I can blame that on being in lockdown and not, not having done a commentary or talked to anybody for weeks. <laughs> there you go. Well, I appreciate it, Great, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. So thank you, Guy. No problem. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much for listening as well, and we will see you next time. 